It's been fun uh, lately having our boys around the house a little bit more. One, one of the things as a father that, that makes me smile sometimes is when I see them uh, doing the things I do. That's not always good because sometimes when I screw up, they, they do that. But, but it's fun when it's, it's something else, like uh, when I go out and mow the lawn. Little Luke, our three-year-old, is is usually quick to grab his toy lawnmower and run up and down the lawn right after I did. I love watching that. Or, or yesterday, our middle son, Evan, was out sawing logs for our backyard fire pit, and he grabbed his saw, and he's sawing with me. Or, or Jaden, throwing the football with him, and he's throwing that spiral just like his old man. Old man's still got it. I, I love when when my kids do the at least the good things that I do. That's what uh, we talk about a lot with, with parents and children, right? Uh, talk about being a chip off the old block or a spitting image. Children often imitate their parents for good or, or for evil. And that's where Paul starts in Ephesians 5 for children of God. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Uh, some translations say, Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Wow, what a calling to, to imitate God in our day in and day out life. You think about things in the Old Testament like Leviticus. After many of his commands, he would say, be holy as I am holy. New Testament, Jesus says, be merciful as your Father is merciful. In 1 John he says God is light. In other words, He is holy again and God is love. So we are to imitate our Father, to watch Him and walk in His footsteps in the power of the Spirit. We become like what we worship. We become like who we spend time with. I thought about this. Jesus warned us that you cannot serve both God and money. And if you become like what you worship, and biblically speaking, money is a tool, right? It's something we use. It's not necessarily good or evil in and of itself. It's the love of money that becomes a problem. But if money is a tool, is that why when we begin to worship money and make it more important than everything else around us, we become tools? We become jerks? But that's what happens when you worship something that's not meant to be worshipped. But when we worship God and watch Him and walk with Him, we're going to start to imitate Him. What a, what a cool calling. He starts to break down a little more specifically what that looks like in verse 2. Walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. What kind of love is He talking about? He's talking about sacrificial love for that other person, right? A love that doesn't always come easy. There's a really cool passage about this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. It says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered... He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Talk about love that doesn't respond to the reviling and the threatening in kind, but continued to 
to fulfill his mission on the cross. But there's a special word in there. When it says Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, the Greek word is hypogrammon. It means underwriting. And what it's talking about is just like we have on some apps today. If you have kids and they're learning letters, there are these apps where they have the shape of the letters and they show the kids how to trace those letters. Trace A, trace B. They had that written down back then for their children in the Roman Empire. It, it, the parents would give that to their kids and they would say, trace what you see on this page. That's what Peter's saying we do with the life of Christ. We look at the life of Christ in the Gospels and we trace it in our own lives. I love that picture and it struck me as I read that. It's not just that, that we try to do that in our own power because we can't. It's the Spirit within us enables us to trace that. And Jesus Himself, it, He lives with us as we live by faith. It's almost as though he, he grabs our hand and helps us trace His life as we live today. What a cool calling to imitate God and, and trace the life of Christ. End of verse 2 there says, When Christ gave His life up for us, it was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That comes from the Old Testament. When the sacrifices were offered, it was often called a fragrant offering. That means it's pleasing to God. And you say, what kind of God is pleased with death? And it's not so much that. It's, it's the obedience of Christ as well as His love for other people that brought us to a relationship with God that, that pleased Him, that sacrificial love. I think about fragrant offering and I can't help but think about last night we were out front playing and smelled something that just made me feel like the wolves on those cartoons. I wanted to start floating through the air and, and following that smell to where it was going. Turned out my neighbor Anwar was cooking steak. Man, that smell was well pleasing. I thought, man, what if we caught that vision? Not that God literally smells, but if we caught the vision that when we sacrificially love people, even when they don't deserve it, in the name of Christ, it pleases our Father because we're walking in His footsteps. What a, what a cool picture He gives us there. But He goes on from talking about the positive, self-giving love to some sins to avoid. And what He's really doing is going from self-giving to selfish living. Because at its essence, that's what all sin is. It, it's selfish. Right, And he's going to go on to break down a few of the things we are to avoid. Verse 3, Among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. That word immorality, when he talks about sexual immorality, is porneia. You can hear the, the roots of our modern day word pornography in there. It includes all kinds of sexual sin. Impurity is connected to that. And what does he say here? It says not even a hint of those things in our lives. It's, it's not just the idea that, hey, I'm not sleeping with my neighbor's wife, so I'm good. He says not even a hint. Alexander Pope said it this way, he says, Vice is a monster of such frightful mien that to be hated needs but to be seen. But seen too often, familiar with his face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. 
The one thing we need to remember when Jesus talks about holiness, He cares as much about our heart, if not more, than our actions because our actions come from our heart. That's why He says when you lust after a woman in your heart, you committed adultery. He, he cares about our hearts and our minds. Not even a hint. So I, I think about this and I think, man, we got to be really careful where we're going, what we're doing, what we're reading, what we're watching. We ought to be concerned about the comfort level of Christians watching things like Game of Thrones or, or reading things like Fifty Shades of Grey because if you read what Paul's saying here, it's not really grey at all. It, it's black and white, darkness and light as he talks about later. Not even a hint of sexual immorality. R. Kent Hughes talks about this idea of walking with wisdom against temptation. He tells a story about a mom who cooked a bunch of chocolate chip cookies and put them in the cookie jar. And she told her son, you cannot have any of those till after dinner. So mom's in the living room and she hears the lid of the cookie jar move and, and she yells in the kitchen, what are you doing, son? And he says, my hand is in the cookie jar avoiding temptation. <laughs> R. Kent Hughes says, look, if our hands are in the cookie jars, it's too late. We, we need to be proactive against these kind of things in our lives as believers. Not even a hint of sexual immorality. Now, you may be listening today and saying, come on, man. It's easy for him to say that back then. That was a different era. He, he wasn't around here in 2020. You know, today that doesn't apply because it's a whole different world. He, we should lighten up on this stuff like... For instance, Paul didn't know that in 2020 there's a website where the slogan is life is short, have an affair, revolutionize your sex life, find the connection you're looking for. It goes on to say we have over 65 million member accounts worldwide. Wow. But I think Paul understands more than we give him credit to. He's writing to the church at Ephesus. There was a goddess worship there named Diana. You know what kind of goddess she was, among other things? She was the goddess of fertility. And without going into detail, the worship for her and of her often matched what she was. Cicero talks about the culture in general in the Roman Empire. And he said this, he said, if there is anyone who thinks that young men should be absolutely forbidden the love of courtesans, prostitutes he is indeed extremely severe when indeed was this not done when did anyone ever find fault with it prostitution was evidently commonplace and widely embraced in fact Demosthenes at the time wrote this mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure concubines for the daily care of our persons but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households Paul knew all about sexual immorality. He's not out of touch with today. It was around then. And he is speaking with God against all that would militate against God's given covenant of lifelong marriage between one man and one woman. When even a hint of that comes into our lives, we need to view it as something that is an attack and an affront on marriage. If you're married, the marriage God has given you, stand up and protect it. So you say, okay, okay, Paul, I get the sexual morality and the impurity. I'm with you on that. But this next one, 
right after those two things, he lists covetousness or greed. Like, whoa, how is that even in the same list with those other two? Well, really, biblically speaking, covetousness, greed, the desire to always have more is the root of idolatry. It's the root of idolatry because what does greed, covetousness say in our hearts? It says, if I only had that, then I would be content. And if, if we're supposed to be walking with God and finding our ultimate contentment in Him and we're saying, I need that still to be content, then, then we're putting that thing before God, right? And what's He say here? He says these things are improper for God's people. They do not come up to the mark, as one translation says. They're beneath us as children of God. And I think about this, like, we have been set free from the slavery of sin, right? And now He calls us children of the King. That makes us royal, sons and daughters of God. Why would we go back to the slavery of sin? I think about in Leviticus, when, when He set the Jews free from slavery in Egypt. And I love what he says. I think we ought to take it to heart as believers today. Leviticus 26, 13, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. I love that picture. He's saying you can walk with your... Heads held high now because you're free people because of what I did to you. And yet we know that after trials in the wilderness following God, the people grumbled and it got so bad they started to talk about going back to Egypt. Numbers 11.4, the, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. Whew. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. What was going on? Well, freedom comes with its challenges, right? Much, many of their challenges, the journey was extended because of their disobedience. But even that aside, freedom comes with its challenges. So they started looking back to the, the pots in Egypt where they had all the food right there. What were they forgetting about? We were slaves. And I'd challenge us to remember that when we think about going back to sins that used to characterize our lives. Don't go back there. I know freedom with God has its challenges, but at least we're free. At least we can hold our heads high because of His grace and walk in the freedom He's given us. It's like we've got to realize we've got a higher calling as children of God. Got to realize the great potential in our lives. When I think about that, I think about a series that Jaden's been watching at home called The Last Dance about Michael Jordan's years with the Chicago Bulls. And you all know he, he three-peated twice with that team, considered by many to be the best basketball player of all time. But something interesting happened during his rookie year. He showed up on that team, and that team hadn't been very good for about 10 years. And they were at the hotel, and he went looking for the rest of his team. 
and he found the room number, knocked on the door, heard all this noise inside, and he looked in the room, and at one side there were lines of cocaine you could do. There, there, were, there was alcohol all over the place, and there were women ready to be had. And he made a decision at that point in his rookie year. He, he said he thought to himself, if I'm in here and the police come, I'm, we're all going to get busted, and, and it's over. So he, he walked away, and he went to a quiet home where he lived by himself and often had his mom over. And I think about, yeah, he didn't want to get caught by the police, but why did he not want to get caught by the police? Why did he not want to fit in necessarily with those guys? I believe he had a, a, a view of the high potential he had in his life, right? He, he had seen his college career. He knew he had great basketball potential, and he did not want to throw that away for what was going on in that hotel room. If he had made a different decision, who knows if he ever would have reached such heights in his basketball career. What about that in our Christian lives? We need to remember who we are, children of God, and the awesome potential that God sees in us, in our lives, whenever we make a decision, whenever sin is in front of us. Verse 4, he goes on. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Obscenity, what's that? It's filthy language. One man defined it as that which a moral person would be ashamed of. Does that characterize our speech? G.B. Caird said this, he said, Where vice is regarded as amusing, the practice of it comes easy. Often talking about obscene things is a way of, of playing with it in our minds. We may not go and do it because we know that's wrong, but if we talk about it enough, we, we get to bounce it around in there. He says foolish talk. Some have defined that as stupid chatter or, or pointless conversation. Now, many were quick to clarify this does not and cannot include all small talk, okay? Because life has moments where, where we have small talk. I'll, I'll talk about that more, why I don't believe it's all small talk. But he goes on to talk about coarse joking. The, the Greek word here literally means easily turned. What he's talking about is that double entendre some of us become very skilled at. You say one word, and you know it has two meanings. And you want your listener to think of the immoral one in their mind and smile as, as you wink at them. The trouble with that is what you laugh at can blur your moral perception. When we become comfortable with evil in our talk, it's not a far step from our behavior. Now, we've got to be careful here. If you're like me, you love humor. Right, And you see the benefit of it in our lives. We need a good laugh every now and again. I believe that's part of how God made it. So this is not a slam on humor in general. It's calling us to be discerning in what kind of humor we speak and, and take in. One, one guy, A. Leonard Griffith, looked at this passage and some people's reactions to it. And I like what he said. Like Paul's been talking about all these lofty, theological, exciting ideas in chapters 1 through 3. And then he says, suddenly at 4.17, he begins to sound like the headmistress of a girl's private school, counseling the young ladies how to behave themselves. 
Then he goes on to say, Paul sounds just like square old dad. You can tell that was written a while ago. We don't use the word square anymore. We do not want to become like the, the definition of Puritans that H.L. Mencken gave them. I'm talking about his definition of them. We, as Christians, we don't want to be described as this. He, he defined Puritanism as the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. <laughs> That's not what Paul is talking about. We should be the most joyful people on this planet and spread that wherever we go. Even Ecclesiastes 3.4 says there is a time to laugh, right? Proverbs 17.22 says a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. So what is he talking about if he's not talking about all humor? It's, it's humor that's vulgar or, or tears others down, okay? Klein Snodgrass asked this question. Is the humor creative, enlightening, and restorative? Or is it destructive, debasing, and inane? Now, one thing that strikes me about this list, there, there are Christians who will scoff at this list of Paul as though, man, that's so old-fashioned, right? But these are, these are not high standards, right? This is a pretty low bar. And if we trip on this low bar of what morality in the Christian life ought to look like? How in the world can we ever expect to walk in the highlands of what God has for us? This is not the pinnacle of spirituality. It's a relatively low bar. Let's not scoff at it. Let's, let's pursue it with God's help. Now, I want to go back to this small talk thing. I think we all have small talk sometimes. You, you don't immediately jump into the good news of Jesus Christ every time you meet someone for the first time, right? You get to know them. You talk about life and, and that builds relationships. But I think one thing we need to keep in mind is that time is short. Time is short. If small talk is all I ever engage in, maybe I've forgotten that I'm here on a mission. I'm here to spread the good news of Jesus. We need to live with an urgency to our lives. Okay, Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 7. The time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. What is he saying? He's saying even with the good gifts in our lives, we, we honor them. We honor our wives if we have them. There are times we mourn. There are times we're happy. There are times we buy things. We're grateful for them. But hold them with loose hands. Don't forget this life is not all there is. I thought about this idea of urgency and small talks okay as long as it doesn't become all we do in our lives I, I thought about our first responders during this crisis men and women who who are firefighters and our paramedics on ambulance team one of the things we really appreciate appreciate about them is when they hear that bell at their station they get up and they jump in the vehicle and they go do what needs to be done right now, no one would fault a firefighter or a paramedic for, for having a meal with his buddies at, at the station. But if they're sitting there for half an hour while the bell rings for half an hour still talking, then we got a real problem, right? 
They need to be out there on the mission that they're there for. That's what I would say to us as Christians. Don't, don't feel bad every time you engage in small talk. In fact, enjoy it. But don't forget there's an urgency for why we're here. Take it beyond small talk when God leads you to and, and talk about the good news of Jesus Christ. Now what's the, the contrast? What, what are we supposed to do instead of these things? He says, but rather thanksgiving. I don't know about you, that's not the first thing I would expect as the antidote to some of those other things. Thanksgiving? Does Thanksgiving help us avoid sin? I believe it does. Listen to what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 16. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. What's he talking about? He's talking about where God put him in life. And he's saying, you've put me within some pretty pleasant boundaries. I have a delightful inheritance. And I believe when we're thankful for where God's put us, whether it's married, single, the job He's put us at, the, the home, whatever, we're less likely to look outside of His boundaries to make us happy. What, what, what does Paul say elsewhere? He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. What if our lives were characterized by thankfulness? I got a text at the beginning of this coronavirus thing that said this. I'm really happy. Spring is here. Because it means I can cut back on electrical power. How about you? I'm making a list of things to be grateful for at the moment. I hope you're keeping your spirits up also, despite all the crazy stuff going on in the world these days. I think the world needs us to be lights more than ever. Said, I'm making a list of things to be grateful for at the moment. That's a great quote. It's even better when you realize who it came from. It came from a buddy of mine who was born blind and lives in a small mobile home. That challenged me. He's sitting home during this challenging season making a list of things to be grateful for. And because of that, he is being a light in this world. What a thankfulness characterized our speech in our lives. He goes on to share a pretty strong motivation not to, not to partake in these, these sins. Verse 5 and 6 talk about the judgment of God. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. What are empty words about sin that we sometimes hear? Maybe if you haven't come to Jesus yet, the, the empty words are, hey, whatever you feel, do it. Because God just wants you to do what you feel. You, you don't need to repent. Those are empty words. Or if you're a Christian, you, you've been forgiven already, so it doesn't really matter what you do. Those are empty words. He goes on, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Now let's talk real here, right, to the Christians. We all fall, right? We all fall, okay? But listen, if you call yourself a follower of Christ and you have no desire to repent and, and your overall life trajectory is characterized more by sin than, than by holiness, I believe Paul is saying you've got reason to be very concerned. It could be, 
And only God knows that you need to truly come to Jesus for the first time. Because these things don't and aren't to characterize the true Christian. The big picture. We need to recapture the, the were. You, you used to be in the are of the Christian life. Paul does it in 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 9, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the bad news. Verse 11, he, he gets to the turnaround. And that is what some of you were. That's what you used to be, but you were washed. You were sanctified, made, made holy in Christ. You were justified, declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. One man said it this way, pretty straightforward. A man does not roll in the mud when he's wearing a new suit of clothes. Our, our lives ought to look different as Christ followers. Colossians 1.13, Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's going to go on to talk about light and darkness a little bit here. The first idea is that light does not partner with darkness. Verse 7, Therefore do not be partners with them. What's that mean? Do not partner with unbelievers in the sins which they engage in. Why? Verse 8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. There was this crazy, wonderful, awesome feast that used to be celebrated in Jerusalem called the Feast of Tabernacles. And maybe you've heard about it. If not, I, I want you to imagine this. The last night of the feast is dark, but there are these huge candelabra. They're said to be as tall as the temple walls in the treasury of the temple, filled with 65 liters of oil. And when, when it got dark at the right time, they would light those torches. And, and the, the flame not only lit up that part of the temple, people have said it lit up much of the city of Jerusalem as well. And the priests and other people would dance below celebrating. Why? That light represented God's light in the wilderness, that pillar of fire that led His people to where they needed to be. It was a celebration. You know what happened the next morning? Jesus walked in there, John 8, 12, and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. He is the, the light of the world. We, if you're a believer, you probably heard that and you know that, but what Paul's saying here is you are light. What? Don't miss the next three words. In the Lord. If you're living in Jesus Christ, His light begins to shine out of us, just like the moon reflects the sun, or if you like glow-in-the-dark toys after they've been hanging by the lamp all night, you take them away from the lamp, they, they glow. You are light in the Lord. So he says, live as children of light. What does that look like? For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. I think about those three things and 
I can't help but think about something crazy that happened to our house this week. Carolyn cracked an egg and, and it had three yolks inside. I've never seen that in my life before. She, she took a picture. What does it look like to live as children of light? What are the three yolks in that egg? Goodness, righteousness, and truth. Our Kent Hughes imagine it like if our lives are a prism, when God's light shines into us, those are the three shafts of color that come out. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. What is goodness? When the Greek, it had not only the idea of doing what is right, but doing it with a generous spirit. Sometimes you run into somebody that does right, but they do not have a generous spirit. They do right because they want you to see it, and they want you to feel worse than they are because they're doing it. But if we can do right with a generous spirit that also blesses other people with our time and resources and our words, that's what it means to be good. Righteousness always meant giving someone their due. So whether it's giving God His due, how does, how do we, how does what God has done for us, what, what burden does it put upon us? What, what do we owe Him? We owe Him obedience, right? Giving others their due and truth, which is more than just speaking truth. It includes that, but it's also living the truth, knowing the truth of God's Word and walking in the, the reality of that. That's what it means to be children of light. It goes on to say, find out what pleases the Lord. It takes some thought. It takes some time in God's Word. It takes some prayer when you come to a situation and say, what would please you right now, Father, in this situation? What path should I take? Find out what pleases the Lord. Another thing about light that's really exciting, it overcomes the darkness. Okay, verse 11. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. The idea here. That just like light is silent, when we live lives that follow Christ, lives of love and righteousness, it ought to show up the, the sin in the world for what it is by contrast. Are there times to speak? Yes, but in the context of light here, he's focusing on our, our behavior. If we live in a way that's different from the world around us, it, it paints a picture for them to see. Verse 12, he says, It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. What's he talking about here? I, th I think he's saying when we talk about sin in the world, we have to talk about it. Paul talked about it in his letters. You remember 1 Corinthians, he talked about a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. But I think it means we don't have to focus on and dwell on and, and, and feast on all the juicy details of every sinful act out there. That can be harmful to our souls. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, it's not necessary for the believer to perform an autopsy on a rotting corpse to expose its rottenness. All he has to do is turn on the light. You understand the difference, right? But it's not just that those deeds are exposed. Listen to this. This is where it gets really exciting to me. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. You know what many people believe that's saying? For those unbelievers who are responsive, if they, if they see you living like Christ and it convicts them and they respond to it, your behavior can actually be a big part of what brings them to Christ and out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. 
Listen to how he says it again. Everything that is illuminated becomes a light. What if our lives following Christ convicted folks that needed Him and then helped lead them to the Savior they need? So listen, we know we don't condone sin, but we do need to love this world. We need to live lives of love and truth in contact with them, just as Jesus was with a humility that keeps in mind where we came from. Jesus is the Holy One that we need to point them to, right? Matthew 5.16, Jesus said it this way, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now I think about the power of light and its healing powers, and I know there were... There's a controversial debate going on on the news this week about that very topic, and I won't get into all the details about it, but one thing I will say, in 1918, when the Spanish flu hit this nation, there were two PhDs that wrote about it, Richard Hobday and John Kaysen, and they said this, Records from an open-air hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, suggest that some patients and staff were spared the worst of the outbreak, a combination of fresh air, sunlight, and other things substantially reduced deaths among some patients and infections among medical staff. They found during the Spanish flu that UV light from the sun actually had healing capabilities for those folks. Think about the power of Christ's light as it shines through our lives. It can help lead people to salvation. Now Paul of all people, knew this firsthand. If anybody knew about coming out of darkness into the light, think about his journey to Damascus. Okay? It's during the day, Acts 26, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. You ever looked up at the sun? It's pretty bright. He saw a light brighter than the sun. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads or to rebel. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul never forgot that moment, that bright light that turned him around from being a persecutor of Christians to a a spreader of that same message of darkness to light to others. He took that message to this city of Ephesus, right? And he preached it and he did miracles and cast out demons. Acts 19, if you want to read it today, tells an interesting story of his time there. There were some people called the sons of Siva who saw Paul casting out demons and they thought, hey, I want to try that. So they tried to cast out a demon They mentioned Paul's name, only the demon didn't respond to these men. He he attacked these men, stripped them naked, and they ran away bleeding. 
They, they, they saw a clear power difference between the power of Christ and Paul and whatever these guys were trying to do. They knew the battle between light and darkness was real. So what happened? Many people in Ephesus who practiced sorcery and magic right after that brought all their sorcery books downtown and burned them and gave their lives to Christ. They came out of the darkness and into the light. They, they knew what it was to come out of darkness into light in response to the preaching of the gospel. So he closes with this rally cry in verse 14. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Man, this, this could be a rally cry for us all. Whether you're a saved person asleep in your sin right now, or you're unsaved and you need to come to Jesus, one thing about sleeping, you don't know you're sleeping until somebody wakes you up. Maybe this is your wake-up call as you hear God's Word right now. This verse, many believe it was attached to early Christian baptisms. It's written in the form of a hymn. Perhaps they, they sang this or, or said it when a Christian was baptized. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. How cool would that be? But it, it gives us a challenge. First, I want to talk to the saved as we close. If you know Jesus and you're asleep in your sin, consider this morning a wake-up call, right? Remember that the same God who saved you out of your sin to begin with, that same gracious God, is the same gracious Father to you today. Bring your sin to Him and confess it, repent, and, and embrace all that He has for you. Don't, don't stay asleep in your sin. Looked out in my yard recently and I noticed there were all kinds of dandelions and, and clover. And, and one thing I notice about those weeds in my yard is they grow just as well as the grass unless I put weed killer on them, right? And I think the weed killer we need to put on the weeds in our Christian life is confession. We need to stop denying what God's putting on our hearts and confess it and, and repent and say, God, help me turn away from this and embrace the the full life you have for me. I also think about something that might sound strange at first. I don't know if you guys heard yesterday, but in Washington State, a strange insect showed up for the first time. It's called a murder hornet. They say they, they can grow up to two inches long. Two inches! They say they make even the big bumblebees look, look small. And, and what these murder hornets do, they attack beehives. And they use strong mandibles on the, the front of their, their face to, to cut the honeybees in half, to cut their heads off. Then they take their thoraxes back to feed their young. Now, I hate the, the murder hornet already in the natural world. That's why they're trying to get rid of it. But I thought, man, in the Christian life, we need to be murder hornets towards the sin in our own lives. Sometimes we spend so much time thinking about sin out there and out there and out there. What about our own life? We need to mortify the sin in our lives. We need to chop the head off it with Jesus' help. And just like they used the thorax of those honeybees to feed their children, I think, man, if we would be willing to chop the head off of our own sin, we would have something beneficial to offer the generations behind us who are looking up to us. So when it comes to the sin in your own life, Christian, become a murder hornet. Last picture I think of here, I think of the old movie Gremlins. 
right? Think of your sin as the, the gremlins, right? Most of the trouble with the gremlins happened in the dark, correct? They, got, they, they ate after midnight. And then he jumped in the pool and the YMCA at night and multiplied and they rampaged through the town. This is Deagle's home, the theater. What was it that finally killed the leader Stripe as he was seeking to multiply again in the fountain in that store? The sunlight crashed in, right? Listen, we've got a higher calling than to live in that old sin. We've got to mortify the sin in our lives. We are light, and we are called to shine that light to others. Paul said it this way to the believers in 1 Thessalonians. He said this, You are children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And this is not just on Sunday mornings. I hope we grab onto that, okay? Max Lucado told a story once about a family whose power went out and they went to the, the closet to grab some candles and, and the wife tried to light the candles and they wouldn't light and the husband said to her, oh, oh, those are church candles. They only work on Sunday. And that was a convicting story, right? If we have fallen into the trap that, hey, Sunday, I do my hour for Jesus and the rest of my time is mine. No, we are the church all week long. And we are to be walking in His path and His works as children of light all week long. It's an invitation. I want to close by talking to the unsaved. Maybe you hear this and you say, man, I've never come to Jesus, the light of the world. I, I feel like I'm trapped in that darkness and I've been looking for hope and this morning I'm catching glimpses of it in this Jesus who says He's the light of the world and if I follow Him, I'll never walk in darkness. First, I want to say we love you and I am glad you're listening. Every one of us who is a believer of Christ is only saved by His grace. We, we, we feel you and we've been there. I also want to share a story of someone named Chris Wan. Chris is a professor at Moody Bible Institute now, where I, where I graduated. Prior to that, he lived an actively homosexual lifestyle. And Chris actually went on to get involved in some crime during that period that landed him in jail. I want to tell you his story. And you say, why are you telling his story? Why are you focusing on homosexuality? Two reasons. Number one, sometimes the world tells homosexuals that you cannot change. With Jesus Christ in the equation, that's a lie. Number two, sometimes, unfortunately, people in the church world paint you as the one group that can't be reached or the one group that's worse than all the rest. My apologies on behalf of those people. That is not what the Bible teaches. All of us, apart from Christ, are lost and in need of a Savior to transform our lives. So I want you to know that a transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light is possible. Whether you're a homosexual or someone who looked at pornography like I did, or someone who's greedy, or someone who's a swindler or a drunkard, there is hope in Jesus Christ for all who are listening. I want you to hear what He said. 
He said, one night as I lay in my prison cell bed, I saw something scribbled on the metal bunk above. It said, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. So I did. It said, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. God used those words to the nation of Israel to speak to His heart. And He gave His life to the Lord. But I want you to read what He said about it. He said, we must live the gospel before we preach the gospel. I would never have considered the gospel if I had not seen the gospel lived out in my parents' life first. In fact, I did not stop pursuing same-sex relationships because my parents convinced me such relationships were sinful. I stopped because they showed me something better. They showed me something better. And His name is Jesus. He closes by saying this, Our job as followers of Christ is to show a lost and dying world that whatever it is they're clinging to, all the fool's gold in this world, fame, money, career, relationships, not only is following Jesus better, it is best. 